When I was in high school, um, I played football and I got injured badly. I took a helmet to the knee and my ligaments tore and it was a terrible situation. And the coach was one of these guys who was like, uh, you know, rub some dirt on there and get back in there. So when, I, when, I, when my ligaments tore, uh, they put me on the sideline. They just put a helmet under my knee and propped it up and left me over there. And the, everything kept going. And I, I was, you know, delusional and going into shock from the pain and all the rest of it. And it was actually a cold day, which isn't good for me. My blood doesn't do well in the cold weather. And I remember reaching over and just grabbing one of the linemen by his ankle. And I said, listen, man, you got to drive me to the hospital. He's like, right now? I'm like, you got to drive me right now. So these two big guys pick me up and they carry me up to the parking lot and throw me in the back of a car. And I'm laying there and my leg is dangling the whole time. And I get to the, I get to the emergency room and I remember these two guys carrying me in and sitting me down. You know, there's no cell phones, by the way. This is like 1991 so, or whatever it was. So, like, nobody had a cell phone. So nobody knew. My mom didn't know where I was. Nobody knew what was happening until we could call from a landline, which is like this thing. Anyways, we, you can Google it. Um, and uh, so I remember being in the hospital and uh, feeling like nobody in that room was more important than me. My condition was the worst and, uh, of course, they put me in a wheelchair. They sat me in the corner because despite all of the pain and everything that I was going through, I wasn't in critical condition. There were scores of people in that waiting room that, that were in much, much worse shape than I was. I was in a lot of pain. And from my perspective, my, my pain was number one. But, you know, in reality, it, it wasn't. Our text today is Mark chapter 5. And here we're about to read a text where Jesus, the great physician, the great healer, he's about to do something that seems like he is disregarding priority sequence. He's about to do ministry in a way that just doesn't seem to make logical sense. And in a shocking contradiction to what seems logical, Jesus actually draws everyone's attention in a direction that nobody would have anticipated, but then he gives far more than anybody would have ever dared imagine. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when we saw him, he fell at Jesus' feet, and he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she'll live. So Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed Jesus and they thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. And she'd suffered many things from many physicians. And she'd spent all that she had and she was no better. In fact, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. For she said... If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd, and he said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see, a multitude is thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, she came and she fell down before him. She told Jesus the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, 
daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, and they said to him, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And as soon as Jesus heard these words that were spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and he saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when Jesus came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at Jesus. But when they put them all outside, Jesus took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, and he entered where the child was lying. And he took the child by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, rise. And immediately the girl rose, and she walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But Jesus commanded them strictly that no one should know it. And he said that something should be given to the little girl to eat. This is God's word. Now in this account, there's a number of interesting parallels that are worth noting. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, which meant that he would have been prominent and influential. Uh, He would have been a successful member of the community. And he would have known that there was a lot of controversy around Jesus. And... He would have known that the Pharisees had a lot of tension with Jesus, and yet he throws himself at the feet of this carpenter because he's desperate. And he's risking total disgrace. And at the same time, you've got this poor woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and this terrible condition she's suffering, and she would have been considered unclean and condemned as unclean by her entire community, and she's risking total disgrace. It doesn't matter whether you're a successful, upstanding person who has the respect of the entire community or you're in a condition that's caused you to be rejected by the entire community. You need Jesus. And nobody in this room is so clean that there's beyond the need for God's grace. And nobody in this room is so unclean that they're beyond the reach of God's grace. And so both, you've got, both the prominent, respected Jairus and this dejected, outcast woman, they both find themselves with the exact same problem. They're grappling with mortality. They're grappling with suffering. They're grappling with the pain uh, of, the, the, of the, the, the condition of humanity. They're, they're grappling with all of this. They're come, they've come to the ends of themselves. And even though their lives couldn't be more opposite, their conclusion is identical i got to fall at the feet of Jesus. And Jairus' daughter is about to die, so you can only imagine the emotional roller coaster that he's in. Right? I can't imagine this. Only if, there's, if, there, if you're in this room and you have, have ha- had to endure the tragedy that is being at the bedside of a child with a terminal illness, then may, maybe you can grapple with the gravity of what Jairus is going through here. But... You can only imagine the roller coaster. He's terrified for his daughter. He's hopeful in Jesus. And as his fear and his hope collide, he's churning on the inside like a tornado because time is ticking. And so you can imagine Jairus' anxiety 
Imagine what it would have been like in all of his efforts to hurry Jesus. This poor woman touches Jesus, gets healed by Jesus, an act that stops Jesus. Imagine how anxious that moment would have been. The clock is ticking. Now Jesus is talking. And I think we'd all be freaking. What is going on here? And what makes it worse is, I think worse in the minds of the disciples and likely Jairus is in verse 30, Jesus says, who touched me? And that's why the disciples are like, everybody's touching you. What, what tone do you think the disciples took there? It, it, it likely wasn't a very res, respectful, well, everybody seems to be touching you, Lord, l- let's inquire. No, they're all rushing because this girl is on her deathbed. They're rushing because this is a code red problem. And Jesus has stopped for something that is not a code red problem. It's a chronic problem, but it's not a code red problem. This poor young girl is 12 years old. This woman's condition is 12 years old. What is going on? Can you imagine the anxiety in that moment? And so I think that the tone of the disciples with Jesus is the tone that we take with Jesus when it seems like he's committing malpractice in our life. He doesn't seem to get what's going on. He doesn't seem to understand the time crunch, the timelines that we're in. It's like it's the tone we strike when it's like Jesus doesn't get that the prayer that we prayed has, a, has like a deadline on it and it's like he's forgotten the deadline we gave him. Right? We've all been there. Some of us are there right now. I feel like, God, you're committing malpractice. Where are you and what are you doing? And so Jairus is thinking, hurry, Jesus, hurry. Don't you know what's going on in my life? The disciples are thinking, hurry, Jesus, hurry. Don't you know what's going on in his life? We think, hurry, Jesus, hurry. Don't you know what's going on in my life? But Jesus will not be hurried. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on in our lives. Have you ever been frustrated, frustrated with somebody who relates to time differently than you do? Right? People who relate to time and timing and being on time, they just relate to it differently. They have a different value system. They operate in a different way. Different cultures relate to time differently. They put values on different things, which, which in, in, in turn changes the way that they relate to time. Right? Have you been frustrated with people that just don't see time the way that you see it? I remember officiating a wedding years ago for some friends. The young girl was Canadian. The young man, uh, his, his entire family was from India. His family flew from India for the wedding. They'd never even seen a wedding like this except for in movies on, on TV because the ceremonies are nothing at all like our North American ceremonies. It's just, you know, and, uh, and so we, I remember officiating this wedding and uh, there was a, a mix-up in the morning and we were going to be 40 minutes behind. But everybody was already at the church. So I had to go out and make an announcement. So I go out and I make this announcement. And you can imagine how that was met by the North Americans, by the way, right? You can just imagine how that was received. You know, I went out, made the announcement, felt like I was taking my life in my hands, immediately left the room because I didn't want to be there for any questions. And then I came back about 10 minutes later, and half of the room, there's jovial conversation. There's laughing. People are milling around. They're taking pictures of each other. There's a, they're just having a good old time. The other half of the room, there's a lot of... This eye-rolling, watch-checking. Just two different ideas about time. That's this text. 
And you know, this passage, and continually through the Bible, you find God's sense of timing, it constantly confounds ours. And in, and in fact, here's the point. Our sense of timing, our commitment to our sense of timing, it causes us to wonder if God loves us, causes us to wonder if God forgot about us, but God will not be hurried because he loves us, because he's not forgot about us. In both the case of the woman and Jairus, Jesus ends up giving them both far more than they would have ever conceived. But he asks for something that they never, you know, kind of anticipated. Right? The woman, she just wants God on the go. That's what she wants. I'm going to get in. I'm going to get my miracle. I'm going to get out. I've lived a life of disgrace. I'm risking disgrace. I don't want this to be... I need this whole thing to happen in secret. I just want God on the go. I'm going to sneak in so nobody sees me. God, give me what I need. I'm going to get out so nobody sees me. That's what she wants. And... She'd lived with such shame for 12 years, the community would have known, you know, her condition, and so it was incredibly risky for her to go out. So when Jesus stops and turns around and stops everything, you know, and he says, who touched me? He wants her to go public. And she doesn't want to go public. So now he's asking for far more than she was bargaining for, right? But then in his grace, he gives her far more than she would ever dreamt of because Jesus wouldn't let her leave thinking she just received some sort of a mysterious healing by touching the hem of his garment. He actually corrects this because she, she said, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. And Jesus says to her, no, your faith made you well. Faith in what? Not a touch. You did that. Faith in the king. I did that. She came to get healing in her body privately, but Jesus, he restores her soul publicly. He restores her whole life publicly. He restores her in her community publicly. He gives her far more than she ever dared imagine she was going to receive. This condition that used to be her shame, now it's part of her salvation story. Because in verse 34, Jesus says to her, daughter, and daughter is family language. So publicly, in front of everybody, he says, daughter. So she doesn't simply leave as a woman who secretly snatched a healing from God. She leaves as a child of God. This is saving grace. This is beyond just physical healing. Jesus calling her daughter, that means you're in the family because of his saving grace. And while all this is happening, as Jesus asks for more than she was bargaining for, but then gives her more than she would have ever really kind of imagined was possible, the little girl dies. While this is all happening, the little girl dies. And, and, and again, Jesus then turns to Jairus, and Jairus asks, and then Jesus asks Jairus for more than he was bargaining for. Because Jesus turns to Jairus after he gets the news. He says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus turns to Jairus and he says... Don't be afraid, only believe. Okay, so now this guy who fell at his feet, who's risking everything, who's like, I believe that you can heal, is now being asked, asked I believe you can resurrect. And this isn't about the amount of his faith or how strong his faith is or how great his faith. Jesus isn't like, you're a white belt, you only believe I can heal. I need you to, I need you to have black belt faith and believe I can raise the dead. It has nothing to do with Jairus' amount of faith. Jesus is directing the location of Jairus' faith. Jesus is like, 
focus. You only need to look one place, and it's me. Don't worry, only believe. And so from Jairus' point of view, from the disciples' point of view, from our point of view, it's like Jesus delayed for no good reason. The little girl was in code red condition. This woman was in non-threatening life condition. And, and so Jesus kind of committed cosmic levels of malpractice. But they didn't have all the facts. The disciples didn't have the facts. Jairus didn't have the facts. And you and I don't have the facts. We don't have all the facts. Um, we can't conceive of what God is doing in our hearts, in our lives, from our point of view, he's all, he always, God always seems to be unnecessarily delaying things. You know, you talk to Christians, and this is like constantly in our vocabulary. Listen to Christians talk. If you've been in church for a while, listen to us, listen to us talk. We're hilarious. I don't know what God's doing. I, I just, you know, I just don't know what he's doing. And where and I don't know. And I, it's like it's constantly in our conversation that we don't know. And you know what? It's okay, little sheep, right? All of us are like little sheep, and it's okay. Uh, we don't need to know. And we don't, we can't possibly know. But God is good, and that we can know. And so, this passage teaches us that we, we will do well to not have a myopic point of view as we consider this, the, the glory of Christ the King and, the, and our God. Because there is always soul-rescuing, mind-renewing, heart-reorienting, life-changing things behind what God is doing. We're just simply not privy to the mind of God, which drives us crazy because we really, really, really want to manage God. We don't want an untamable God. We don't want the Jesus that can just shush the hurricane because that Jesus can't be tamed. We want the small contortions of God that can be tamed. And here he is again, showing us that he's not going to be hurried. Death doesn't seem to bother Jesus. He knows what he's doing. He's that good. And so Jesus arrives and he says that the little girl is sleeping. And they laugh at him. Do you notice how much ridicule is happening to Jesus in this passage? Who touched me? Oh, Jesus, everybody's touching you. Duh. That's the tone of the text. That's the disciples following Jesus around. Who touched me? The disciples' reaction is, <laughs> should you tell him or should I? <laughs> oh boy, wow, wow. Jesus, everybody's touching you. The ridicule of Christ. And here again, he walks in. She's not dead, she's sleeping. And they laugh at him. Like Jesus is the Billy Crystal character from The Princess Bride, who's like, she's not dead, she's only mostly dead. And they laugh at Jesus. It's the greatest movie of all time, by the way. If you haven't seen it, that's your homework for this afternoon. You've got to watch it with, this part, with your family. That's what's happening. Um, it's too late, Jesus. You don't understand, Jesus. You blew it, Jesus. But what they couldn't grasp was whether raising the dead or curing a fever Neither was difficult for Jesus. Neither was harder for Jesus. And so Jesus calls this little girl and he says, Talitha kumi. And Talitha in the Hebrew, your, your English translation says it means little girl. But I want you to know the tone, okay? The tone of Talitha, when you would say that, 
you weren't just saying, this is a little girl. It was a term of endearment. It was like in, the, it's like in English when we say, hey, sweetie. That's what it is. Hey, sweetie. And then, you know, and, there's a, and Mark, who records this, because Mark was the scribe for Peter, right? Peter's the one in the room. So Mark is writing it down. Peter's telling him. And so, what did he say? He said, Talithi kumi. Okay, so Mark writes it down. Talithi kumi. Now, that word kumi means get up. That's all it means. Now, there is a word for resurrect, to be reanimated in the Greek. It's, in the Greek, it's anastasis. But Mark doesn't write down anastasis. It's a more profound word. It just writes down, little girl, get up. Why do we have that, and why am I bringing this up? Well, I'm bringing it up because Jesus is staring at death. Think about how terrifying death is for us humans. The horrible, inescapable, unstoppable enemy of all humanity. Jesus is staring right at it. And he takes the little girl by the hand and he says, Hey, sweetie, it's time to get up. That's it. And this teaches us that if Christ has his grip on you, death doesn't. Jesus' actions announced to everybody in that room and everybody in this room that death is nothing more than sleep for those whose lives are in the hands of God. Now, I want you to notice that this isn't simply powerful that he raises the dead. It's so tender and it's loving. And I'm bringing that up because if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic of Christian faith and you're curious and you're exploring, this is not how you write ancient poetry. Writing, hey, sweetie, get up. That's not how you write an epic poem. That's not how the ancients wrote about gods using their power. If you read, and I mentioned this last week, it's worth repeating, I'm going to repeat it again, if you're here today, and you struggle with the Bible. Can we believe the Bible? Is it just legends and stories? If you read, for, just as an example of, of epic literature, talking about how gods use their power. If you read Hesiod's Theogony, and you read about how Zeus defeats the Titans, okay? You start reading in line 662 of Hesiod's Theogony, and you're going to find... That Zeus throws lightning bolts thick and fast. And there's trailing indescribable supernatural flames that rise and light up the divine sky with such dazzling fury that they, that they dazzle the strongest eyes. That's how Hesiod's Theogony reads, okay? That's the gods using their power. Here's how the Bible writes it. Hey, sweetie, it's time to get up. That's not how you write poetry. That's how you record history. And here we have this glorious moment, church, that we can look back and reflect on the implications for our own lives of what that means. These details. That's why at the end of the text, Jesus says, hey, you guys should get her something to eat. She's probably hungry. Do you see that? That's an important detail. Not to the story, not to the plot, not to the character of Jesus, to the fact that it's historical. Because you have no other reason to say, after Christ raised his one from the dead, you know, everything, everything in epic poetry sounds like, by the power of grace, go! That's how it all sounds. This doesn't sound like that. You know how this sounds? Hey, sweetie, get up. It's time to get up. Hey, you guys want to get her something? She's probably hungry. I imagine death will take a lot out of you. So you want to get her a bagel or something? I don't know. Do you see that? It's amazing. Have you ever been lost as a child? 
Uh, have you ever had one of the kids get me after the service, the little kids running around here and they, they lose sight of their parents? And there's this moment on their face where it's like they're terrified. And then they look and then they see their parents and they run and they grab their little, they, their little hand, grabs the hand and they're like, okay, good, everything's going to be okay now. You know, we've maybe had those moments when we were kids, or our kids have had those moments. You know, when the child grabs the parent's hand, it's like in the mind of the child, it's like, okay, everything's going to be all right, nothing could possibly go wrong. And as parents, we know the child is wrong because we're not perfect parents, we're going to make mistakes, we can't always be there for our children, we can't just make force fields around our kids and protect them all the time. So we know, that's, we know, we know that that's not, that's not true, but here's the good news of the gospel. The, the creator of the cosmos, the one who flung the stars into the sky, the one who said to the ocean, okay, that's far enough. The one who raises the dead by saying, hey, sweetie, it's time to get up. That God, he has us in his grip. And even though you and I can run off like naive little toddlers that get themselves lost when our hearts trust in something or someone like they're our God or our source of peace or our contentment or our identity in this world, we can run off and get lost like those little toddlers. Our God takes us by the hand. Our God never lets go of us, though we let go of him all the time. He's faithful when we're not. He is with you in everything. You can trust him in everything. Everything you're going through in your life right now that you have to face on Monday, where you thought that Jesus is somehow asleep at the switch, that, he's, that this thing you're going through is code red critical, and he is off dealing with somebody else's, you know, forgotten about you. You can trust him in everything. Because in the end, he will restore everything. And he will take you by the hand. And he will say to you, Hey, sweetie, it's time to get up. And he will raise you from death itself to enjoy everything. This is your God, Christ the King. And after he raises us from death to enjoy everything, then we eat. That's how the end of the book ends. Jesus' perfect life for you. Perfect obedience before God. The perfect love of neighbor. That perfect life that he lived on your behalf. His atoning death for all of your sin on your behalf. His divine resurrection, he ascended on your behalf. And his resurrection means that we're all going to get one. And when he healed that sick woman in the, in the street, that was a foreshadowing of the cross. Because he felt power go out of him. The text says, immediately he felt power draining out of him. You see, he was drained so she could be healed. And on the cross, Christ was fully drained so that you and I could be fully healed. He was drained so that we could be made whole, perfectly whole. If all he did was heal her physical body, what good would that be to her today? It would be of no good. But he didn't just heal her physical body. He healed her soul. He called her daughter. He gave her saving grace. And that is of eternal significance for her today. And that's of eternal significance for you and I today too. And so on the cross, Christ was drained of his life so that we could have eternal life. He was drained of his strength so that in our weakness, he gives us perfect strength. And on the cross, Jesus lost the comfort of his Father's hand. Jesus knew what it was like to be let go by the hand of God so that you and I could live in the comfort and the confidence that our life is forever in the hand of God. So church, you do not need to live in anxiousness or fear or frustration or impatience with Jesus like he's unaware of what you're facing in your life. He's not committing malpractice in your life. He has you by the hand. He is lovingly guiding you, strengthening you through all that you face. He is asking for your trust, and he is giving you his grace. Let's pray.